Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me tonight, uh, for the first time ever, I believe, is my buddy from Gamers with Jobs, uh, Sean Sands. Sean, welcome to the show. Yeah, this is my first time. I'm excited. Go gentle. <laughs> we also welcome back our old friend, freelance writer, Andrew Gruen. Andrew, welcome back. Hey, Rob. Uh, so, obviously, you know, you're, you're a couple guys I love talking uh, StarCraft II uh, with. Competitive and just the multiplayer mode. Um, life being what it is, we don't get a chance to play as much as, as I would like, but, you know, that's the story of all our lives, I think. Mm. Um, but, you know, we've had some time to spend with Heart of the Swarm uh, since it came out, and seeing how that's sort of affected multiplayer, uh, get a feel for the new units, uh, the, the new flow of the game, and also see kind of how the competitive landscape has changed, uh, really dramatic, dr- really dramatically actually, uh, in the last few months. Uh, but you know, to to kick us off, I, I kind of just wanted to see. You know, I heard a lot of talk leading in the heart of the swarm about how the stakes were really high because there was like wings of liberty burnout. That StarCraft II had kind of gotten more abundant. People were kind of over it. And I guess I'd like to take your guys' temperature, like heading in the heart of the swarm. Uh, where were you guys with StarCraft II? Well, I'll, I'll just kind of kick it off here and, and say, as far as playing it, um, done in a lot of ways. I, I, it had been a it had been a good six eight months between when I had last dove into any kind of you know whether it was just redoing the single player or going back and playing the computer or or playing online and the latter i hadn't done any of that in for a while but i really was not burned out on watching starcraft as a spectator event like i was still very interested in watching the mlgs and the nasls and the uh, you know igm pro league back when 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 that was around you you know, I, it was it, I, I wasn't fanatical about it. Like I, I, I might miss a tournament here or there uh, or pick up uh, just just, you know, Sunday afternoon, the, the, the finals or something like that. Um, but every time I dove in, I still had that energy for it. And so um, as it as it got closer to the launch of Heart of the Swarm, I found myself actually kind of getting reinvested and starting to maybe play the campaign again, maybe trying to see if I, uh, you know, still had any game on the ladder and things like that. Like that um so you know I, I guess it's sort of it's somewhere in the middle as far as playing it a little out as far as still consuming it though still pretty engaged yeah i mean for me i was actually the, ex- the exact opposite i never really <laughs> lost interest in starcraft multiplayer to to the moment i started playing the only time i stopped playing wings of liberty was when i switched to the heart of the swarm beta um mm-hmm. and i didn't play from from launch i played a little bit at launch but once I started playing uh, Wings of Liberty, I didn't really stop for about a year and a half. It was, it was, you know, it started to wane, and then I think I discovered the competitive scene. I wasn't really into the competitive scene originally, but so I discovered the competitive scene. And once you start watching that, you realize that you basically just haven't been playing StarCraft at all. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so you just you realize how the game is actually played, and you sort of start to understand it in so many different ways that it just completely re-energized. Uh, my interest in in understanding the game and really wanting to know the game like it was like it was a chessboard. Well, well, and I, I mean, you you mentioned the beta, which is which is interesting to me because the thing that really stands out as I think back to the beta from the competitive standpoint is how little the pros seem interested in the beta. Certainly at first, I mean, it, it, for a long time there, it, it, it seemed like. 
you know, it, it was almost like that was that was a little bit of the nervousness going into Heart of the Swarm because the the, the pros weren't that interested in it. You'd you'd have people like White Raw and a, you know a few people who'd really put out some uh, streams or put out some some games. Right. Um, but 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 it wasn't it wasn't that big of a deal. It didn't seem like. So what was I mean? What was your experience in the beta? Uh, my experience in the beta was that it was just really strange. And it was that a lot of people, I think maybe there was a little bit of trepidation from the pros who really didn't want to let go of the position that they had in Wings of Liberty. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a situation like StarCraft 1 where StarCraft 1 uh, was only out, I think well, it was like eight months before Brood War came out. So there really wasn't a competitive scene built up yet. And this was really one of the first times. I mean, we saw that, that same sort of odd turnover with when brood war turned into starcraft 2 a lot of people who were established in brood war just didn't really want to let it go because this is what they had Mm -hmm. and if you do switch you risk a lot you risk that you might you know if you were you're not gonna probably not gonna go from you know code s gsl to code a but you might go down from a champion to the to getting knocked out in the first round Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, when the some of the Kespa players were starting to make the transition, that long-awaited transition for the uh, Kespa team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those of you who don't follow the follow the uh, competitive StarCraft scene, uh, Kespa is the Korean Esports Association. That's kind of the uh, old guard organization that kind of uh, you know made Brood War the premier esport uh, that it was, and really that's where sort of the legendary performance of Korean players uh, was really established. And they they stuck by Brood War uh, till the bitter end for a variety of reasons. And when they first started making their transition, do I, do any of you guys remember uh, that 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 show that that show tournament uh, that the MLG did? I do. Uh, yeah. Back like think- last summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was the first time the Casper Pros were were playing uh, StarCraft yes. Two, and mm-hmm. it was a debacle. Uh, in many ways, <laughs> like it was, like because I, I, it, it had been hyped, uh, it had been it had been given so much hype, and uh, then you see them tackling a game that is clear they have barely ever played before. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I remember, I think it was, um, oh jeez, was it Jadong who who uh, like tried a queen rush, basically? Mm. Uh, but it was it, it was like it was StarCraft as performance art. Uh, it was, uh, and there was a lot of nervousness, like are these guys gonna be able to make the switch? And I think you had sort of a similar fear, uh, yeah. That and this is one of those cases where the the disinterest of the practicing professionals in the uh, Heart of the Swarm beta, I think, is one of those cases that really does draw the line between like the 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 fan community and the professional players. Like fans were really interested in it. People who play StarCraft for fun really want to see the the, the next big thing. Uh, pros are playing for the next big tournament, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of them were afraid to even you know like to even like waste brain cells on yeah, uh, heart of the swarm beta when you still had to be practicing your fundamental mechanics and, for uh, wings of liberty and i think that makes sense in a lot of ways because you look at you look at where the beta started and where it ended up and there were some i mean there were some massive changes i mean there were a lot of people playing around the terran with right. warhounds for a while and of course warhounds don't exist anymore right. and you know playing with the oracle and using i forget what the spell was called but you cast it and you close off everybody's uh you know the the, the mining right, for, for an right. area well, I forget what that was called, like mm-hmm. encapsulate or something, and, and then that's gone. So I, I understand that from a pro's perspective, because of course they're they've got, you know, while while that beta was going for those whatever nine months, there were a half dozen big tournaments that went on. You can't you can't waste your time figuring out how to do a warhound rush or how to defend if you're Protoss with a stalker against warhounds. If all of a sudden, guess what? That <laughs> unit doesn't exist now. 
True. Yeah. I, you know, I do think that there that was a little bit of a line um, for pro gamers who were saying that they would, you know, they didn't want to waste time on it or whatever because. It, there was so much interesting stuff happening in in the game and you had players like like Marine King who would go into the beta and he did phenomenally in the beta because he's just a really great um improviser and he's a really great player when it comes to just trying out new things and he really wants to have all these new tools at his disposal and i think a lot of the pros just didn't want um weren't comfortable with a scenario where they didn't know the answers to every possible solution. I feel like that is a part of a problem with, with the current pro scene. Yeah. And I think that's a good point because one of the things that I, I kind of like about where we are right now with heart of the swarm is I don't feel like it's matured yet. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the fun thing from a spectator point of view is everybody, you know, you, you look at the, the, the recent MLG and um, was it, it wasn't Dallas. Was it, where was the most recent one? Uh, that it was Dallas, matter. yeah. Was it Dallas? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had Anaheim stuck in my head for some reason. Anyway, in, in Dallas, and, and you saw kind of what I watched in that tournament and some of the ones since then is a lot of potential experimentation. And I remember it felt for a while there like Terrans were just, you know, with with the with, with their widow mines and, and mm-hmm. with the drop play and things like that. They were just unbeatable. And of course they were beatable because <laughs> they did, you know, it, 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 right. it ends up with the, with Zurg in the, in, in the finals there. Um, but, but I like that. I like that sense of, 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 of there's all these strategies yet to be uncovered and everything's still back to that place where it's a little bit clunky and um, it's a little bit of, uh, you know, of, of being exposed to things for, you know, the first time and then having to figure out, Oh crap, I, I have no idea how to stop this this thing that this this strategy because I'm not familiar with the the mechanics of these new units and these new playstyles that that it opens up. See, to me, that was actually a little bit awkward. The Minimal G Dallas to me was actually a little bit awkward because um, for that exact reason that you mentioned that there is so much experimentation going on. But because of that, some players were getting hit with strategies that they didn't even know could happen. You know, I, right. I remember specifically. Um, it was, uh, I want to say it was MC versus Bomber. And MC was the like, one of the first players to really start using the Oracle. And he'd just show yes. up with like four Oracles. Yes. And it, there was just <laughs> nothing that could be done against it. And so that was a little bit anticlimactic to me. So for one, from one hand, it was really exciting to see these new strategies come just out of the ether that no one had ever seen before. But on the other hand, it kind of made the matches a little bit less exciting to me. Oh, see, I don't know. I yeah. actually found... Uh, I actually found MLG Dallas to be really good for for a lot of that reason. For one thing, I, I was really there, I think there's a lot of overreaction to suddenly the Zerg uh, losing a ton and the Zerg were really underpowered. Uh, and yet ultimately, um, yeah. And actually, I didn't want to get into esports this soon, but it's it's <laughs> it, it, Star, Starcraft <laughs> and esports are so tied up together that it's hard to separate one from the other. Sure. What I found really fascinating at the way MLG Dallas played out is that for months and months, basically since uh, uh, a, a series of patches basically last summer, I want to say, uh, Zerg had really been on a tear. The Broodlord and Fester, uh, combina- the end game was really, really difficult. Brutal. Yeah, uh, particularly for Terran uh, to to defeat, but it, it was it was hard for everybody. It just you could disable that. You, you know, there were so many weapons the Zerg had at the end game that. Uh, the other players had answers for, but they didn't. They didn't match up uh, perfectly, and they're very hard to execute. And so at Dallas, what I found really funny was that 
uh, that Zerg, who eventually uh, wins the entire damn thing, is Life, um, mm-hmm. who was always the Zerg player who seemed to almost like resent the the Zerg metagame, where when if you if you watched Life play throughout you know the entire period of you know I guess what you call like Zerg, Zerg uh, primacy, um. Life kind of like if he was going to the traditional standard uh, Broodlord and Fester endgame, he almost did it under protest. If he could possibly win it <laughs> with a classic like Zerg Rush and Baneling early aggression or some sort of uh, you know insane uh, mutalisk micro, he would try to do that. Uh, and ironically, I think that st- stood him in good stead for making the transition because really, as the um, as, as we rolled over to Heart of the Swarm. A lot of those like early game fun that early game fundamental play uh, stayed the same. End games got a little harder to manage, and I think the Zerg were particularly hit uh, just by the fact that for so long the Zerg strategy was just kind of look get to end game, build brute faster, win. Well, and I think that really speaks to some of the changes that that are relevant in Heart of the Swarm. I mean, you know, pulling back a minute and looking at Heart of the Swarm as an isolated sort of uh, entity, I feel like it changed the game in a, I don't want to say fundamental way, because I don't know that I know that yet, but I really think it took a lot of the emphasis on the end game and, you know, that, that kind of macro game that leads to these, you know, 30, 40 minutes. And I think it really, I think Heart of the Swarm awards the aggressor in a way that Wings of Liberty didn't and i wanted your guys input on that if you agree well my my stance on that is um is a little bit conflicted because when the when heart of the heart of the swarm came out it was incredibly attack oriented especially for terran players because you had it was something ridiculous like six different ways where you could either harass or all in within the Mm -hmm. first eight minutes and it was just a really really fast-paced style of play and i hated playing against terran players and i'm a terran player but i could not stand terran players because it was just so fast and so obnoxious um but i feel like as the metagame gets established and as those sort of cheesier strategies get figured out, Terran players might get forced back into their shell quite a bit more than they had been previously in the last few months. Yeah, I, I kind of felt like, for, for one thing, it just felt like a lot of uh, Heart of the Swarm. For if, My perspective is primarily going to be Terran. That's primarily who I play. Uh, for me, it sort of felt like a lot of the... Um, a lot of the crap had been cut out, basically. For me, like mm-hmm. what was actually kind of a revolution was not having to research uh, siege tech. Yeah, uh, was <laughs> yeah. actually actually huge change because it was uh, th- there was always this period of enforced idleness in the t- in the Terran transition from early to mid game, where mm-hmm. you're just kind of twiddling your thumbs and being like, okay, well, I just need to wait for that tech to finish, then I'll deploy, you know, my then I'll you know leave my wall and I'll start to be able to take mid. And what's different in RTS is those moments that are basically ritual, right? Where this mm-hmm. is what you always hear people complaining mm-hmm. about, uh, about sort of what's happened with StarCraft. They use this as the example, is that it is a game where the build orders are so rote, where the timings are so well known, uh, where the choices eventually become so few that really you're not there making decisions. You're no longer playing strategy game. You are basically a, uh, you know, robot, uh, just, you know, flipping switches between, uh, you know, between between game plans, I think that's 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 obviously um, 
really dismissive of what it takes to play StarCraft. But I think the, there's there's a kernel of truth to that complaint, which is, again, yeah, whenever an RTS just turns into this thing where there's there's all these moments where there are choices, but they're all illusory. There's there's so clearly an optimal path. There's going to be a there's going to be this you know pause where you really can't do anything as a fact with a faction. Uh, that that's kind of death. And my reaction, at least to playing Tarion in Heart of the Swarm, was that that was no longer the case nearly as much. There were suddenly a lot more opportunities uh, to sort of change up the pacing of the game, uh, to choose new routes for harassment, uh, new new timings for attacks. It just, you know, I don't know that I'd say, because I'm not, I'm not a terribly aggressive player, mm-hmm. but I, I would just say that everything just sort of sped up uh, a little bit and Heart of the Swarm gets to the good stuff more. And and I think that's what I'm driving at because I, I tend to be more of a Protoss player and, and really so, you know, when the, when the, in Wings of Liberty, the, the, the problems with Protoss is, of course, that, you know, it, it is sort of a slow build-up to the Death Ball at the end state. And with the Mothership Core and with the Oracle, it's begging you to go out and get on the map <laughs> and get out there and go pressure the, the you know, the, you know, the, the Zerg who's trying to take the early uh, the, the early expansion or I mean you know and, and there's like there's like lower risk because of course you know oracles are super fast you can go in test it out see if you can kill off about a dozen probes or or, or SEVs or drones or whatever and get out of there and if not hey it's fine you're gonna you're gonna be across the map in about four seconds yeah. um, and of course is... go ahead sorry no I was gonna say in the mothership core like if it doesn't work just just go back home. Just click the button and you're back home in a half second. Yeah, Protoss really did an about face with Heart of the Swarm. They really, I feel like every race pretty much got like a new arm to work with. And every mm-hmm. every every gap that the races had, it was this really precision expansion pack where they, they knew where every gap was and they plugged it with something. You know, whether it's what Widow Mines did for being able to hold down a defensive position as Terran, or whether it's Oracles being able to give Protoss harassment opportunities and Mothership Corps being harassment opportunities, mm-hmm. and with uh, Vipers being able to um, give the Zerg the ability to assault in entrenched uh, positions. I mean, every every race just got this new arm to play with, and it was just really tactical, really good expansion pack, in my view. So... But this is actually the the crux of what I wanted to talk about with Heart of the Swarm. Just from from the standpoint of people who aren't going to be playing at a particularly accomplished level, um, you know, it's easy to see these things as, as operating almost uh, of almost being revolutionary. Uh, if you're watching pro games, uh, just like you said earlier, Andrew, you know, if if you don't watch, in many cases, you know, when you see the pros use these units, that's the first time you understand how StarCraft really works. But at the same time, I, I kind of feel like there's a little bit of a risk, and I'm, for me personally, at times, I wonder if Heart of the Swarm has fallen into it, where the fixes, the changes they're making, the fixes they're making are so specialized. They're covering up such subtle gaps in the faction in the, in the faction balance that for a lot of people, it's not going to necessarily feel like this, uh, like this huge change has happened. And I kind of feel like, in particular, uh, you know, when I've played around with the Zerg, for instance, I have to force myself to use the Swarm Host 
I really do. Like it's it's just not a unit that I've really found a great place for uh, in in my game plan. Usually, you know, if it, you know, I'd rather spend the supply on something uh, you know a little more general purpose that I can you know just use. But I compare that to you know the um, really the exa- the expansion that everything every expansion is compared to uh, Brood War, and Brood War was this immediately immediately like huge obvious change. Uh, the the factions had all been substantially revised, and I just worry how the swarm mm. for most of us the changes are going to be um, uh, you know like a new coat of trim paint. Well, and I I think StarCraft Two is more advanced than StarCraft 1 was at release. So, I, I mean, not just, like, technically advanced. I think I think StarCraft 1 had some, as I recall it, it had some serious issues that Brood War really, really had to step in yeah, to take care of. Very true. <laughs> like, and StarCraft 2 wasn't in that same place. I think StarCraft, you know, Heart of the Swarm, I wasn't looking for a total revolution in the mm-hmm. same way that I would have been with Brood War. And I think they, they touched the base on that. I think they really actually could have gone too far with with heart of the swarm and i was a little worried about that and i'm glad that they you know the 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 nice thing is is that the 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 ideas that still work the ideas that worked within wings of liberty they still have elements and strong elements that are valid and valued in heart of the swarm now i mean you don't the the night the good thing is yeah you may not use the swarm host but you don't have to use the swarm host it is there as sort of an expansion in the you know the the classic sense of the word as opposed to look we blew it on our first tryout we're going to try and put this out there you're going to need these new units because the stuff we did before just isn't cutting it Right, and I think it's important to remember um, that StarCraft II is, is is meant to be a trilogy, and I feel like it was it was designed in this very humble way where Blizzard almost it feels like they almost said, okay, we're not going to be able to make Brood War on our first try again. It's just not going to happen. Mm, right. So let's let's take eight years to do it, and let's hope that by the end, by the time that Legacy of the Void comes out, that we have a product that resembles what Brood War was. You know that that to me is just Blizzard tried to take it slow with this and heart of the swarm is an incremental step towards what uh, legacy of the void will eventually fulfill hopefully you know when it, when, it, when it comes to the new units um you know I, I think we've got what two terrans and a protoss here yes yep. um and look i'm gonna be real frank with our audience here um i just hate the zerg <laughs> um like, i do too i'm like, basically right? a bigot when it comes to the zerg and uh you know, no dogs or Zerg uh, allowed in this podcast. Is it just like the last six months of watching pro games where you're just so sick of watching these guys play absolutely perfectly that you just don't want to hear it anymore? Oh, I just don't like to play it. I just too. don't like to play it. I mean, it's, it, it's that simple. Yeah, And, and honestly, my, I, I have to be honest, my least favorite race to watch is actually Terran. But oh, that's a oh, whole yeah. other thing. Oh Whole my god! Thing. No, 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 no! The worst race to watch is Protoss, my friend. Oh, <laughs> oh my god! They're just the most slowest, most painfully deliberate I, games. I you love will ever to see. watch Terran because when you watch a good Korean Terran play, yeah. it's like watching a machine just with gears working. It's there's so much symmetry and perfection going on in their play that it's just beautiful to watch to me. Oh god! What was the game in MLG? Um, Which one? No, no, no! Using uh, using the seeker missiles 
on a oh. uh, on a on a friendly on a friendly medevac, flying it out over the enemy formation to extend the <laughs> missile range. God, I want to like, say that was I want to say that was, was. A, I say that was bomber. Um, MC that. bomber. No, I don't. No. Oh, hang on. Yeah, it auto completes. Just put bomber. It auto completes bomber seeker missile method <laughs> uh, to uh, uh, go see user. Okay. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll link that to the podcast. But it was just it, it was an incredible thing to see, and it was like, yeah, Taryn, awesome. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so uh, kidding aside, actually, I do I actually do enjoy uh, watching just about any good StarCraft game, uh, and I actually right. enjoy watching Zerg. Uh, PvP though uh, has kind of ruined me for watching Protoss in general uh, because <laughs> I'll give you that late, one. It's pretty bad. Late era Wings of Liberty PvP was just excruciating. It's better mm-hmm. in Heart of the Swarm, but it you is. Know, there's no question. You're absolutely right. Uh, so anyway, so units that like, like, what are kind of standout changes for you guys when it comes to uh, Heart of the Swarm? Let's just talk about new units. Like, what are some of the standout new arrivals? Well, uh, I mean, I, 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 I've already mentioned them, but seriously, mm-hmm. the Oracle. I I love that Sky Toss is valid now. Like, like Sky, the the idea of of carriers, obviously, you know, has never really had a good place in competitive play. Right. Um, I, I don't know that that's changed much if at all um but void rays certainly have void rays really have become you know something i think are really going to get uh you know more and more discovered but oracles and and mothership cores are you know yeah it's our two units um but it really has like like i said before it has so changed the dynamic of play for protoss that it really is almost revolutionary because it does provide this opportunity to break out early on you know you go out and, and you hit out you know go across the map with a, a, a stalker a zealot and a mothership core and it's not it's not the stupidest thing you could do, which it really would have been without the Mothership Corps and in, in, in Wings of Liberty. Um, it, it gives you a lot of a lot of interesting play, and and the um, you know I, I'll be interested to see how the Oracle holds up in the long run. I think they're, I mean, you know, for the first for the first month or so, that that sort of felt a little overpowered. But I think people are going to you know across the board, not just the top players, but kind of across the ladder are really going to develop some strong strategies for holding off that early pressure. But I love that it's there. I love that you have to take that into account. You can't just assume, oh, I'm playing a Protoss. I've got a good solid nine minutes till I got to worry about anything. I actually completely agree with with everything that you said. Even as a Terran player, I um, I really started monkeying around with Protoss when I sat down to, to write my review of uh, the Heart of the Swarm multiplayer. Um, and Protoss is just a more fun race in general mm-hmm. to play because of Sky Toss being an option. And I really only played Protoss because I wanted to play Sky Toss. Um, for not to get too deep into the, the lingo, but Sky Toss would be uh, a Protoss player focusing on their Air Force army with Void Rays and Oracles and Carriers and whatnot. Um, and, I, the, you know, those two units, the, the Oracle and the Mothership Corps, really fundamentally change every matchup that they're involved in. And they force you... Um, to think harder, they force you to think about your play better, and they force you to do a lot of important things that make you a better player in the long run. I mean, um, both Void Ray and um, Oracle like proxy rushes 
are so <laughs> dangerous and so immediately deadly that it forces you to, to go scouting and scout every corner of the map, which is something you never would have done in the past. As you know, Personally, as a Terran player, I never even bothered. But now you, you really have to, and it, it's something that you should be doing, and it makes you a better player. And uh, as far as the Oracle coming into your base for harass, um, it's, it's just a good idea to leave units behind, split up your army, make sure you're scouting, all of these different things that just they force you to become a better StarCraft player. And that's what I really like about what happened with Protoss. Now, I, I, for me, i got to say, for, for the, from the Terran point of view, um, the... the uh, the widow mine is kind of the has kind of stolen the show for me. Uh, mm-hmm. it, the 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 dual purpose power of, of this thing uh, is is really incredible. Like I love that it completely it can amazingly bolster uh, you know a fixed position. You know if you if you leave it outside a wall off um, or part you know seat it uh, out in front of your uh, frontline units uh, in front of a siege line uh, right. it can, it can do just it can just devastate uh, an incoming force and just take a toll as the battle continues uh, but it's also just a fantastic watchdog uh, you know if you've just got you know if you've got a flank you're concerned about uh, a base that you want to lightly guard but you really don't want you don't you really don't want to detach many units to deal with it, um, it it's a fantastic I, I love just sort of seating it back there to uh, screw up drop play uh, and so for me, I, 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 what I, I guess I'm also a little partial to it because it's kind of a fire and forget thing where it's not something I need mm-hmm. to actively micromanage too much. And so it really kind of plays into my weaknesses uh, as, as a player in, in many ways in that it allows me to basically take something off my mental checklist, uh, not completely, but at least give it a lower priority. Uh, you well, know, that's an easy way to bolster a position, easy way to defend. And one of the things I I think is really interesting about it, it, it's almost a Terran version of creep. Like, I I thought, I'm glad you Hmm. brought up that component of being able to use it as visibility as well as an offensive unit because i think that's thought yeah it's a it's a little it's a little underplayed but as as somebody who doesn't play terran i would feel really hostile toward uh more hostile toward um uh, the widow mine if it weren't when it's buried it becomes a semi-neutral unit in, in that as an opponent I it, it's the only unit I can think of where I can use it against my enemy. I can use it against the person who planted it there, and that makes it so cool as a you know not just a, a you know a, a a offensive weapon on your side, but also certainly you're going to have to think about where it's positioned and where it's going to fire because if you're if your Marines are there and I've yeah. got one Zealot in there, guess what? I win based on <laughs> your where yes. you planted it. I, I, I adore that. the I adore the widow mine um, personally, and it's it's not honestly it's not for any of the reasons that you guys mentioned. For me, it's the fact that it's this amazing psychological tool that you have to just mess with people. <laughs> because seriously, if you have one widow mine out of the map, it changes everything about that with the way that person plays. They're going to be much more hesitant to try any drop play, anything with oracles. Um, they're gonna they're gonna sit back in their base because they're afraid their army is just going to get nuked. They'll they'll take they'll have to take extra micromanagement time to send out. 
that one zealot to go and test uh, <laughs> the route to the enemy base to see if there is any widow mines on the way. And it just it tinkers with their brain in a way that you can really utilize. And to Rob's point about being fire and forget, I really think that was something that Terran players really needed because Terran has always been the most micro-intensive race. And, you know, you always get into the arguments about this with people in, in, in matches about which is the, the most micro-intensive race. But I, I feel like there's pretty much a consensus that Terran is is the one that you need to micromanage the most and to have that tool out there that you can forget about and you don't have to to split this unit you don't have to uh, make sure it's positioned absolutely perfectly was a really nice thing to have for the race you know i I think it's i think it's interesting because as and maybe there's a bias here with protoss and two terran players it feels a little bit like zerg heart of the swarm got a little bit short shrift like I, I don't feel like the Viper um, or, or or the Swarm host really in the long run is going to change the dynamic of their race as much as, you know, the uh, the, the Mothership Corps, the Oracle, um, the Widow Mine will change the dynamic of Terran and, and Protoss. But am I being biased here? No, but but there's I think there's a couple things. One, the Zerg probably needed the least revision of any of the mm-hmm. races heading into Hearts. It's really ironic. The Zerg-focused expansion actually turns into <laughs> an expansion that's really about the other races and bring them into parody. Uh, so I think in some ways the Zerg kind of had the most uh, developed, had the most developed faction, developed game to play. And I think what... I mean, like like I said, I have still not figured out what to do with the Swarm Host exactly. Um, and listeners, please set me straight uh, if I'm not using this thing correctly. But the Viper interests me because it does play a role and an important one. But it is so specialized that it is basically like the Zerg player was handed a stiletto. Uh, not just any stiletto, but like one of those X Files stilettos that kills like the black oil uh, aliens, where it's just like it's just this thing that's like good in this one situation, but when you need it, like you you really need it. Yeah, but and, actually, I, I want to ask you about that because what's the one situation? Because I think everybody focuses on the oh, I can go grab the uh, the. the, the the tank and pull it into the middle or i can go grab the colossus and pull it in the middle but i think in the long run their biggest their their biggest um um spell is going to be the one that that essentially reduces range vision to to one yeah absolutely yeah no that's that's definitely a great tool and to, um the thing with the with both swarm host and the viper to me was that it was really like a it, it was really just adding skill ceiling onto the Zerg, and maybe the Zerg didn't exactly need it, but they, they needed something else to test them. And I think it was one of the reasons why they had trouble in the early, the early days of Heart of the Swarm is because the only new units they had were these very specialized units who needed to be used very in very specific circumstances in just the right way and added a lot of complexity to the race, especially with how you engaged in these big battles, which Zerg are very used to just sort of you know, maybe they'll have a little bit of positioning like Stefano is very famous for. He'll attack from like four mm-hmm. different sides all at once. Um, but with, with the Swarm Host and the Viper, you need to make sure that your Vipers are in this attacking from this really safe angle so they don't get sniped out. And you need to make sure that your Swarm's Hosts are just the right distance away. And then you also need to flank with your other, you know, with yeah. one side of units and flank with another side of units. And I feel like it was just... It was just, it added a lot of complexity that Zerg players needed time to figure out. And I feel like in the long run, it's going to be a good change for the race. Maybe not the best change, like compared to the other races, but a, a good solid change that they needed something to challenge them. 
Yeah, and I like I, I do think having seen Blinding Cloud used really effectively in some competitive matches, like yeah, I think that's probably going to be the the more go to uh, ability. But I, I really do I really do like abduct. Not yeah, the example is always like seizing the tank. But actually, where I see abduct really coming into coming into its own is actually in picking off a retreat. Because where Abduct mm-hmm. is at its deadliest is when the guy wants to leave. He wants right, to get right, out, right. and he can't. And medivacs. It, I mean, yes, abducting medivacs best. is the best. Yeah, and if you can, yeah, and usually, like, if you can get that fully loaded medivac on its on its escape vector, like that's that's a huge win. And because flying units are kind of in the middle of the map, uh, it's it's not that difficult to use it as uh, an interceptor. Uh, so I mean that's that's where I've seen seen it used uh, seen it used a lot. Um, I, I yeah I think it was initially maybe it was initially conceived as some sort of like first strike offensive weapon to open the assault, but that's not how I see it actually coming into play. It's more I about agree. buffing. Um, you know the blinding cloud comes into effect during the combat and the abduct turns a minor victory into a major one. Right, and it also it gives Zergs a chance to have a really uh, an interesting mid game. Whereas before, like you mentioned, it, the problem was that they were just sort of hunkering down until the late game. And this sort of gives them an option to you know, get their swarm hosts before they get all the way up to their, their super tech units and give them an opportunity to siege a base or to try to get a good engagement to get, to get a lead instead of just you know, turtling all the time. Well, so I feel like though we've just kind of we we've talked about these three units that we kind of like I've identified as like stars of the expansion, and not a lot's been said about the other units, and I think I, I find that a little bit telling. Uh, like you know, speaking as a Terran, I'm not entirely sure that I've uh, I'm not entirely sure I, I've warmed up to the Hellbat. Uh, in any real mm-hmm. sense, like it's it's there, and I understand again it has. I understand it has it has sort of a special special use case, uh, but that is such a specialized circumstance that in most cases, I'm not going to bother with, and I'm going to stick with the builds that you know I was getting good with in Wings of Liberty. Yeah, I'm not sure the Hellbat actually does have a, a decent a decent area in which it can be used because it, it takes away. That one key thing that you need with your with your um, with your Marines and Marauders army, which is the ability to kite, and Hellbats can't kite, and so the the usefulness of your, yes. your biological army just it doesn't exist anymore. So I'm not sure that in the long run there's actually going to be any place at all for the Hellbat, besides maybe as a harassment tool. Like in the beta, there was a lot of there was a lot of Hellbat drops that actually ended up getting nerfed because they were so good. Um, so the Hellbat but, winds up in the same limbo that the Firebat did. Or even the Reaper. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sort of, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's extremely limited in its use, though as the, uh, the the race that has zealots occasionally trying to go do something, um, yeah, we, we really hate them. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's doom in, in, in a bottle, essentially. The, uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, I'm just sort of wondering, though, uh, we talk about all of these 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 changes, and when we're talking about them, we're really talking about them in terms of play at maybe the Gold League or Platinum League up, which is really the top 50% of players. But I'm curious what you guys think about well, how these changes affect players who aren't all that good. I mean, StarCraft has tens of thousands of players who play at the very bottom level, at, at Bronze League or Silver League. And I'm wondering, do these have any, any effects on them at all? Or is this just fodder for the, the top 50% of the community? 
it's another toy in the toy box. I mean, when when you're thinking about the units kind of at that that really deep tactical level, deep strategic level, um, you're you're sort of outside the range of silver and 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 bronze league and even low, low gold league. I say that as as a player who admittedly loves watching StarCraft more than they're good at playing StarCraft. <laughs> and so I'm, I, I've lived a lot of my life in the silver and gold leagues. Um, and, and you don't see, if you watch the, the replays neutrally as somebody looking at it from a point of view of a dispassionate point of view, you just see... Well, let's see what happens if I throw nine oracles at the dude. Oh no, that, that didn't work. Let's see what happens if I do this. So um, it, it's and that's fine actually. I think I think that's good because it it does increase the sense of diversity, and I think that's what it does for the very very casual player. It's mm-hmm. it, it creates something that you couldn't do before. Whether you do it correctly is irrelevant. You just couldn't do that before, and now you sure. have this thing that lets you do that. Um, and and that's really all you're looking for at that level. I hmm, I don't know that I entirely agree. Like, yeah, it's another it's it's another toy it's another tool in the toy box. Uh, but at, at the same time, I think if you're playing that, if if you're if you're playing at a lower level, the the problem is that if, if you don't really understand how to use how how to use the tool. Uh, it, it's just going to be kind of different unit art in some ways, or more more accurately, it's not even that you don't necessarily understand how to use the tool. It's that the issues in your game, the issues that are keeping you from being good at StarCraft, uh, are going to be kind of top level, uh, and the problems that these units are designed to solve are, mm. uh, you know, kind of right down there in at the tactical, you know, in, at the engagement level, and and I think for a lot of players who are, you know, in that in that bottom fifty percent, um, I don't think these units are going to feel like they change very much at all, because in that respect, StarCraft remains very much the same game. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's still StarCraft, and so it's still a game about you know economic management and converting that into uh, military power, and then winning the battles. Uh, and I think what keeps people out of uh, you know gold league and above is that first part of the equation. Right. Yeah, and I even think understanding that... that that first part of the equation exists, that there is an extra degree of efficiency that you can find if you really examine your own play. A lot of people don't even know that that can happen. Yeah, it doesn't make a difference what unit you're playing with if you only built 18 SCVs the entire game. For me, where where my game gets real shaky real fast, and I actually end up trying to win most of my games uh, before I'm on my third or very quickly after I'm on my third, because once once I hit the three bases and up uh, phase of the game, I have no longer I no longer have the ability to split seamlessly between production, uh, harvesting, and combat. And I end up focusing on two at a time and ignoring one. And once you're doing that, your game is done. You know, you're you're basically it's just you know if if your opponent's competent and can do those three things, it's just a countdown to what's going to get you. It's going to be lack of production. It's going to be lack of lack of funds. Uh, it's going to be throwing your units around in badly managed combats. Uh, and so I, I I think you know one thing that Blizzard really emphasized heading into Heart of the Swarm, and now that I've seen the finished product, I'm not entirely sure they succeeded with this, 
Uh, one of the things they emphasized, though, was that it was going to create more of a pipeline for bringing, letting players raise their game. Uh, that it was going to be a little more, it was going to help you. There were a lot of tools in, in Heart of the Swarm to help you learn StarCraft II. And I feel like what, a lot of that's kind of been left to the community. I think there's a lot of hope that, uh, you know, I mean, Morham would talk about this, that he would hope that, uh, you know, the Apollos and the Day Nines of the world would use tools in Heart of the Swarm to sort of revolutionize teaching StarCraft so you could raise the level of your average StarCraft player. Uh, but if you look at what's in the game, um, you know, the, the training tools are, are still really rudimentary. And I, I think that remains kind of an issue for StarCraft uh, more broadly, is that the game really comes into its own at that Gold League and above level, and it's very hard to get there. Well, that's going to change. I mean, that, that, that is going to change because you had a lot of people who didn't play for a long time coming back to the game. And so what represents the lowest 50% now is actually a lot lower than what represents the lowest 50% four months before Heart of the Swarton mm -hmm. came out. And it's going to get there. I mean, I, I remember what StarCraft to Bronze and Silver League looked at in the first six months after the main release, and then what it looked like in the six months leading up to uh, Heart of the Swarm. And those are very two very, yes. very different. Like, very, like, very different. Like Silver two months before Heart of the Swarm was Platinum and above yes. uh, <laughs> uh, back then. So I think I think we're in that, uh, coming out of that honeymoon phase where you actually see, um, you'll see more investment and, and value in those things they were talking about. Yeah, I think it's like it's sort of a it's, it's sort of a two-edged thing because you know the actual software has a lot of a lot more tools than Wings of Liberty did in terms of helping you understand how to maybe just get out of Bronze League because Bronze League is is the bottom eight percent of players now. It's this very very right. low uh, amount of players, so it's really that alone helps a lot of players because Bronze League used to be pretty tough i was in bronze league for like my first i want to say 800 matches or something something crazy <laughs> like that because the bronze league was cutthroat in the last year of wings mm -hmm. of liberty um but as far as what they've actually done with the gameplay of heart of the swarm i feel like they've actually made it much more brutal for new new players because there's so many more opportunities for to just lose in the first like i mentioned earlier the first eight minutes are just incredibly fast and if you you have to learn how to survive those first eight minutes very quickly or else you're going to lose most games before that happens something i do want to throw a shout out to though is how much better the skirmish ai is in heart of the swarm than it ever was in wings of liberty uh, Wings of Liberty, I think, had the classic um, RTS AI that would do a few rushes, and then mm -hmm. it was kind of done. Like it had no mid game, uh, <laughs> absolutely zero end game. Like once, like basically, if you could survive its early pushes when it was just like, uh, w you know, wallowing cash and just churning out early game right. units. Mm -hmm. well, if you could survive that, and surviving that isn't hard once you've you know got your early game build uh, you know ready. Then the AI, it was just a matter of cleaning the AI off the map. Yeah, I, I remember I remember winning an eight-player FFA against the AI on the, like, very hard level. Just, 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 just wall off, just survive for ten minutes, and then go beat them. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely accurate. There, was, there really was. They had one build order that the AI could handle, and then beyond that, there was just too much variation that the AI just sort of fell apart. You're absolutely but, correct. Yeah, and now I see it like... 
what really impresses me is you can go and deliver just a hammer blow, right? And you know, you've you've mismatched against them perfectly, so you know you've got the right composition. They don't. They they die. And all you have to do is clear out the uh, natural expansion and the main, and you'll be done. You know, you basically got a one game here. Uh, and then I just start, you know, beefing up my forces. And then just before my attack can start, the AI comes out with a counter. Uh, to to mm-hmm. my composition, and that's something that never in a million years would I ever see in <laughs> Wings of Liberty uh, in any meaningful sense. And here it happens routinely. So I will say that like the skirmish AI now is, I think, at least more useful as a teaching tool and a place to learn with no pressure uh, than it ever was in Wings of Liberty. Uh, so so that's actually that's not to be that's not to be uh, you know, sold short. I think that's going to really help a lot of players sort of find their feet. Uh, unranked, uh, unranked ladder, uh, un- unranked. No, it's unranked. There's no such thing as unranked ladder. Unranked matchmaking uh, is, I think, another important thing because so many people freak out uh, over ladder. Uh, ladder's <laughs> a bruising experience. Yeah, yeah, um, and. It, when you mentioned un- unranked as well as the AI skirmishes, that really, to me, is the big message of Heart of the Swarm. When they talk about getting players into um, into understanding competitive play, it's really is a, it's about a, a stepladder sort of situation where you start out with the campaign, you understand how to move the units around, you learn the very basics of an RTS. Then you go into the tutorials, which, like you said, are rough, and they don't teach you a whole lot exactly about how the game is played, but they give you an idea for the fundamentals of what I think they actually teach you a little bit about what a timing attack is and about, yeah. you know, how to just hold out for a minute and when you're vulnerable, these sorts of things, tech trees, that sort of thing. And then you can, you can use that to get into AI skirmishes a little bit. And then once you understand AI skirmishes, you can get into unranked ladder. And then once you're comfortable in unranked ladder, you can get into the, you know, the cutthroat, horrible place that ladder matches are, <laughs> uh, where people, the, the, I mean, where you learn the final piece of the pie, which is learning how to play against somebody else and understand their psychology and understand how to look at their build. Yeah, was, was anybody else sort of, I, I, I found, I, I found a lot of people really complimenting the single player experience in, in Heart of the Swarm. And it was interesting from an engagement perspective, but I, I, overall, as far as a gameplay perspective, I found it a little disappointing. Am I, am I the only one on that? Well, I mean, so we talked a lot about RTS campaigns last week, and Tom Chick was here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, boy, he would be totally in agreement with you. He hated uh, the Heart of the Swarm campaign. I uh, thought the mission design was really uninspired, particularly compared to Wings of Liberty. Uh, and yeah, so I think there was a great deal of disappointment from him. And I, I think other, you know, he he turned me around, turned me around a little bit on it as well. I actually like, I actually like the Zerg porn. Uh, in Wings of Liberty, in part because it's this thing I've always been afraid. Um, it's, it's this thing I've always been afraid of. You know, like I mean, the 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 sight of like a teeming mass of banelings backed by roaches and zerglings coming in, <laughs> like physically turns my stomach. Like oh, it's, it's something I wake up in cold sweats about. Uh, but for the single player campaign to be like. Here you go. Have 150 banelings. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. It feels kind of nice. Um, and so I kind of enjoyed just basically being handed these lopsided Zerg ass kickings, uh, you know, time and again. I, I was, 
I, I was digging that. I, I don't think the mission design is up there with uh, Wings of Liberty at its best, but right. I, I I think it's I, I I think it's pretty good. Although, Jesus Christ, that that the Kerrigan design outfit design is just mortifying. <laughs> it's like it's humiliating to play. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah, I, I guess. I guess the thing I felt, and because I feel like the biggest leap in the entire game is going from the single player to any kind of 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 multiplayer experience, whether that is just playing the AI or playing on unranked. Because for me, single player just felt so gimmicky at every turn and sort of disconnected from everything else that started StarCraft Two is. I just. I, I guess I just felt a little overall disappointed with that, and, and looking at it from a player who was as a player who was returning and trying to say, okay, I want to go back in and kind of get my get my feet wet, get comfortable in the environment again, right. so that I can make this step. It actually didn't push me there. Like the single player was like, hey, here's the single player. We are over here by ourselves having a Zerg party that is completely <laughs> irrelevant to everything else. Yeah, I feel like Blizzard has to have a, a complex relationship with their with their single player modes because very few people actually really care about the single player mode. Their, their community that they're going to live with for the next ten years is going to be focused on the multiplayer. But it's the single player that converts people. It's the single player that sells the copies. Well, yeah, I think it sells the copies. It, I do not think it converts people. Like well, what I mean is that yeah, that's it gets my, people yeah. in the door. Yeah. So that they can experiment with multiplayer, and eventually, so hopefully, a, a certain percentage of them turns into diehard fans down the line. And maybe it probably is the pretty fairly low 15-20% of people who buy the game actually really get into multiplayer. But, yeah, so they have to have this a little complex of a relationship. Yeah, and they've got to lavish so much like these incredible production values uh, on the campaign as well. Uh, also, I just I hated the evolution missions. I thought they killed the pacing oh, of the campaign. Like, just let me I choose agree. between the two of them, or yeah, just please, just let me move on with the story. Be- beyond that, I actually kind of enjoyed. Um, you know, I actually kind of enjoyed a lot of the writing uh, in in the heart of the swarm campaign like uh yeah it's you know it's standard space opera stuff but uh if you can set aside the costuming uh i think there's i, I think there's a pretty good story there i actually uh, had no complaints there with the costuming or with the story no with the story <laughs> no the costuming <laughs> sean, sean sitting there looking at kerrigan's ass with a beer like right on <laughs> that's right hail the king blizzard how, how, how do i screenshot this and make it my desktop <laughs> uh so the last thing I wanted to get to uh, is that basically, it, you know, for the 2013 pro season, well, first of all, there's a 2013 StarCraft pro season now. Um, <laughs> and so that right there lets you know this is going to be kind of a weird uh, watershed year for StarCraft II. Right. Uh, and Blizzard has really tried to seize the reins and uh, rationalize competitive StarCraft. And... I kind of wanted to take your temperature on their efforts so far. Well, I think the I think the environment is challenging, and I don't know if it's different. But two years ago, or even a year ago, if you had said, "What is the biggest, most important esports game on the market out there to be watched?" It would have been StarCraft Two. If you asked me this year, I'd say it's League of Legends. Yes, and I think that really has changed the dynamic of how 
you even approach a 2013 season. I think it's it's the story in part behind you know IG and Pro League and 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 it, it's it faltering and 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 the things that are going on with WCS. I think StarCraft Two is at a point. I don't want to call it a point of crisis, but it's at a point where they really have to make some important decisions about how to move forward with StarCraft Two as a esports, if not leader, then you know key player. Because they are at risk, I think, of losing that stature. Sure, I think that absolutely it's an effort to try and hold on to that number two position because there there's no catching League of Legends at this point, and with Not the now. business with the business model that Riot has, StarCraft isn't going to catch them with a paid game versus a free uh, free to play game. It just can't happen. Um, and so they really have to work really hard just to keep that number two status or else they have to be worried about some other free-to-play game showing up and, you know, knocking them out of that. And if they're number three in the world, then, you know, StarCraft will always have its dedicated following. But, you know, StarCraft Esports is a big deal for them and it's moved a lot of copies, I think. Now, the big change has been last year we had the Battle.net World Championships uh, in Shanghai. And that was... Kind of a shit show, I'd have to say. It was Mm -hmm. one of the worst tournaments I watched all year. Um, And as a national, like, crowning event, it was actually kind of embarrassing. It was just a few months after League of Legends uh, had their world championship in L.A., Mm -hmm. and the comparison between the two events was (laughs) uh, really depressing. Um, I think Total Biscuit actually said uh, that uh, Lone Star Clash, which is put together basically by undergrads in Texas, uh, was a vastly superior tournament uh, than what Blizzard did with more money than God in uh, Shanghai. So I, I think that was kind of a that was kind of a come to Jesus moment for Blizzard. Uh, you know that they had to do something. They have to take uh, their production a little more seriously. Where I think. They've run into some problems. I, I kind of feel like Blizzard kind of walked into a no-win situation here because one of the things I loved about competitive StarCraft was that it was kind of this big, spread-out, rambling structure. You know, you had DreamHack one week and then an MLG like a month later, and then you might have an uh, you know an IE an Intel Extreme Masters tournament uh, you know a few weeks after that, and so there's always something to look forward to. There was no like. There was no uh, bracket structure. There was no playoffs to determine like who's going to be the the world's greatest. But at the same time, it was kind of cool to follow this ongoing narrative: who's up, who's down, um, and all the tournaments had their own character. At the same time, it was also very tough to follow uh, StarCraft esports. Yeah. Like it was, it yeah, was really brutal keeping up. But I, I think Blizzard has kind of tried to fit everything into a framework. But the problem is, how do you take all these different tournaments uh, with their own traditions and structures and character and then put them under the umbrella of the WCS and then engineer it all to spit out a world grand champion uh, at the end of the year that's going to make sense? And I think Blizzard's made a number of compromises at each stage here, but looking at it on the whole, I just kind of wonder if maybe there haven't been a few too many compromises that WCS has kind of turned into this Baroque esports tournament. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it feels like, like you say, there's a real disconnect between the way the StarCraft II competitive landscape has been versus this. And, and I don't know that there's a thirst out there for the preeminent champion of StarCraft II. If anything, that's sort of come out of GSL 
to my mind in 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 the past couple of years um but but even that there there's something about you know the the mlg structure where it's like okay you know it's for june it's you know it's it's Stefano, or it's 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 even somebody like Huck or something like that. Right. Uh, it, it, it's it's I I don't know that I'm looking for that consolidation in the way that they're trying to position it, but I also understand from a logical perspective that maybe they don't have a choice. I, I my personal standpoint is I wonder if this actually makes any sense the the idea of a yearly StarCraft champion because mm-hmm. players ebb and flow so quickly yes. in, the, in this yes. sport that the 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 GSL Code S system which takes place over a course of maybe two months is really the only system that makes a lot of sense because it rewards the player who is rising at the time whereas uh-huh. you talk about I mean life last year may not have even been in the WCS because he didn't <laughs> rise until like the last six months of the year. So the point system might have not rewarded the very best player of the year at all. At the same time, though, I kind of, it drove me a little bit crazy to always have the narrative be someone is, someone is surging. Someone's like making a serious run of being best in the world and somebody else is totally finished. That guy's done. Stick a fork in him. I remember like DRG was like peaking uh, last spring and in the summer. It was like mm-hmm. DRG is just, he's a master. World's best Zerg. By fall, it was like the guy was dead. Nobody wanted to talk about him. It was just like shake your head uh, whenever he came up. Like, oh, DRG's finished. And it's like, this is insane. This is, this is crazy talk. Um, it doesn't, it, like, people usually don't rise quite that fast, and they don't fall quite that fast. Look at, look at the longevity of a lot of these Cuspa pros, uh, who've, you know, basically were excellent in Brood War, who are continuing to be excellent in, uh, StarCraft II. In some ways, I kind of like the idea of there being this overarching structure to, like, force the narrative to adhere, uh, to some reasonable time frame as opposed to this, you know, yo-yo approach of well that guy won dream hack he's amazing he's just he's won two in a row now it's over okay is is that that. is that a function though of the culture of the game because i can't think of it i mean i can think of people who are rising at the moment but and and who sort of fall back but i can't think of anybody who right offhand who is consistently you know playing at that top level or 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 bouncing back regularly i mean i obviously remember a time where idra was considered one of the best zergs in the world and then it was drg and then i think leenock won one in there somewhere and now it's 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 life and and you know white rot is gone stefano I think you do have sort of those players who can at least maintain for a year. I mean, you mentioned Lenok, and Lenok is, is an amazing player who's won two He's still very good. Now. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, MC, you can't get rid of MC ever. MVP is always around. Uh, Stefano has shown surprising longevity. I didn't expect him to be around quite as long as he was. And life, same deal. He, he doesn't seem to ever want to go away. Um, I, I, and I hope that this does force, like Rob said, that sort of it sort of forces you to focus on the truly great players who are constantly in the top 16 rather mm-hmm. than focusing on the one player who happened to have the, the best weekend. So let me ask you this in a different way then. Does it okay. limit Does it limit the audience? Because realistically, how many of those players are going to end up being foreigners? Yeah. Ooh, okay. So that's so we didn't get to this part, but we should clarify it. The WCS has three regions, European, Korea, and North America, mm-hmm. except you can play in any one of them. Uh, you have to choose, and then you're committed to that region for the year. 
And a lot of the matches, I think, are taking place uh, online, so they're going to be played over Battle.net uh, as opposed to, like, in a studio or at a tournament site. Uh, but this basically means that you can have a bunch of Koreans enter the North American and European circuits mm-hmm. and work their way up there, and it's... Not only is it conceivable, but you could even say it's probable that by the time the World Championship Tournament rolls around, every region will have yielded a Korean lockout. I think I'm it's assuming only a matter that's of the time. case. I think it's only a matter of time before Blizzard outlaws that and changes it to where you are currently living. Because if you know, if a Korean player wants to come and live in America and play here, they're probably going to suffer in terms of their actual play capabilities. So they can do that if they want to. But I think you know this is probably a one-time deal that they'll actually do that because it is you know the tone in your voice says everything. It's nonsensical and it's it's a horrible idea. Yeah, but. but- but think about why they did it. I assume the reason that they did it is because if they did not do it that way, there would be one region that anybody cares about in two regions where it's just uh, oh, oh, the also-rans play here and somebody won North America. So, you know, I've, I've watched a bit of uh, LCS this year, uh, Riot's uh, League of Legends Championship Series. And what's been interesting there is I thought it would work that way. I thought, like, North America by the end of last year uh, was in really awful shape in competitive League of Legends. And so, and I suspect even this year, you know, whoever ends up, uh, you know, ahead in North America, I think is still going to have a really brutal time uh, in the playoffs. But at the same time, when it comes to, like, the regular season week in, week out, uh, I don't think it makes a ton of difference in terms of the excitement level. Like, what, what you want... What you want are good games. You know what I mean? Like, ultimately, that's yes. all you really care about. Uh, you want to see people who are good. They don't have to be the best. They have to be good. They have to be well-matched. That's an entertaining game. And what the LCS has done is they've sort of hived off the regions from each other. We're going to see, eventually, how they all stack up next to one another, whether North America continues to fall behind. But in the meantime, you can watch North American games, and they're really good. Uh, because mm-hmm. they're actually well-matched. They've had a lot of time to play against each other. They've sort of figured each other out. Uh, you're seeing, like, sniper builds deployed against each other. And that's all really exciting. It's something the Koreans, I think, hit on a long time ago, the fact that the uh, you know huge weekend tournament structure doesn't necessarily showcase anybody to their best advantage. But I'm hoping that, given time... If you were to isolate, if you were to maybe more effectively isolate the other regions from the from Korea, you might have a slightly better not quality of play but quality of game because they aren't they aren't the same thing. And I think there is, I think the StarCraft community has a little bit of a problem with uh, being kind of like wine snobs. You know, where it's like, <laughs> I'm not going to even watch this play. I'm not even going to watch this tournament because the best players aren't even here. And the problem is. Uh, what you what you end up with though is a really crappy thing, where every tournament has like four or five Koreans who are just shuttling from place to place picking up prize money, and they're always going to be in the quarterfinals, and everything else is just you know uh, prologue. Yeah, and I, I think this does give an opportunity for some. Hopefully, if 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 they can cordon off the regions a little bit, it does give an opportunity for more players to make a living doing this and to to take away some prize money and be able to afford to spend some time actually playing the game as opposed to just trying to pick up 33rd place in the MLG hmm. uh, championship that weekend. And, you know, um, 
Jeff Robinson in control mentioned mm-hmm. uh, when they announced this, um, his point was that it actually it, it gives you a chance to talk to advertisers and to sponsors and be able to say something that has impact. Like if you are an American who has won the North American regionals, the WCS, that, that carries some impact or that just doesn't happen when you when you say that you, you placed you know, right. 22nd mm-hmm. at MLG. Nobody cares about the person who plays Tony second at MLG, but people do care about the person who won the North American regionals. It's a subtle. Um, oh, I can't think of the word. Uh, it's a subtle, subtle distinction. But subtle distinction, I, yes, but it is important for them. I think. No, and I think that's that's hugely important, especially because they're going to need those advertisers. Because the one thing that it doesn't seem like Blizzard is really doing is. Um, Blizzard's definitely putting more money into StarCraft, mm-hmm. but if you compare it to what Riot is doing, and right. I mean Riot's running their league probably at a loss. Now whether they get that back in the increased popularity for league, I have no idea. But it yeah, helps means- having people not have to worry about having a day job and just be able to focus on the game. That makes for a better sport. Yeah, I mean, even Valve's doing the same thing with Dota 2. And, I mean, Dota 2 is way back in the back on uh, behind League of Legends and others. But they're dropping, like, million-dollar tournaments once or twice a year. Well, I think what Rob is getting at is in terms of uh, Riot offering salaries to their top yes. teams. Oh, I'm sorry. No Whereas, as, as opposed to it being a winner-take-all system where the top players are fabulously wealthy, but everybody else is you know, living in a basement or in like a, a team house where they all make $8,000 a year, but all their expenses are covered. Well, right. Like, go to sc2earnings.com, uh, and you can just, wa- like, just look how dramatically the prize take falls off. Uh, for for a year so go to 2012 and see how quickly like you know if you're parting or drg or stefano things are great right. the, the case with parting is i think parting the only major thing that he won was yeah, the, the, uh, the wcs so it's just that one yeah. thing and he's up there so if you win you're great but if you take if you place eighth all the time maybe not so great right it, it falls off very fast uh, so I think that's I think that is going to be an issue. It, that's that I think is what kind of worries me about StarCraft. It's worried me for a little worried me for a little while, is that you really need, you know, I mean, Sean, you watch a lot of sports. You need a good mid tier. You need you, you need do. a lot of good middling players uh, to make a sport work. Because if it's just if it's just about who's at the top, it's not really viable. Not unless there's a lot of them, and not unless there's a lot. Of, again, I think there's there's just that that lack of diversity among the top is really the worrying thing to me. I think you can get away with it more if you have the top fifteen are coming from Australia and the U.S. and France and Switzerland and everyone. But you look at the top fifteen, and it is thirteen of them are are Korea, and, and yeah. that does that that makes the mid tier all the more important to me. But yeah, I mean the the one last thing I, I'd say sort of about the WCS though right now is just I've been spending like I've been trying to figure out exactly how it all fits together, and I still I don't, don't get entirely oh, yeah, get it. I don't get it. They need like, to clarify that better. There are there are qualifiers happening happening for North America, mm-hmm. uh, but then if you go to the Liquipedia page for what the North American WCS is going to look like, there's also a ton of invited players. Um, now I would almost swear that I saw some of those invited players uh, playing in the uh, in in the challenge brackets, but the the, the sum effect of it is 
they've created they've created all these different uh, channels, all these different regions, each sort of operating according to slightly different rules. It seems, uh, and once again, you you know, it, it basically, if a year ago you kind of had a rough idea of how MLG worked, how GSL worked, uh, how Pro League worked. Um, how uh you know IEM worked that's you know you you were great you just needed to understand roughly the, what the difference between these tournaments was now once again you've got to both sort of understand the tournament but also how this particular tournament interfaces with WCS and at that point it's just like have you really simplified it or have you just well what I would say is that I think once those tournaments start happening and we get a chance to sit down and, and the casters really have to have an understanding, it's really on the casters to help yes. us understand while we're watching. And Starca- StarCraft casters are wonderful. As far as every other sport is concerned, I think StarCraft has the best casters. And I, I think that once we get to start watching these tournaments, we really will have a better understanding of how this all fits together. Yeah, I think that's legit. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean... Basically, we just need to wait for tasteless Nartosis to tell us what to think. <laughs> right, because, because uh, what, which is what I mean is like basically who, who, what I do. Who really knows how how golf yearly works. I mean, I've watched a fair amount of golf, but I don't know how it works. I mean, I um, or tennis or all, most of these sports have fairly complicated uh, ranking mechanisms, things like that. But they, they're, they're explained to you, and and people get it over the over the years. I mean, that's really what it well, it, it comes down to. Is this is a this is a move that will take years to really come into full fruition. And I think that's actually a really good comparison because if you look at something like golf or tennis or even NASCAR, where they have this main sort of cup thing, you know, the the right. FedEx Cup for golf. Or I, I don't watch NASCAR, but I know there's a cup. Um, and and how the point system and all that works, you can watch any one race or any one tournament and really get engaged in that tournament. I mean, people will watch the Masters or the U.S. Open or, or, or whatever, uh, or the Ryder Cup and not care about how that necessarily fits in. You know that it does, and you can get to the end of the year and say, hey, great, this person's number one in the world. But as long as they keep an identity to the individual tournaments, right, yep, right. whether whether the cup actually, you know, whether the cup or the, the the main rankings work in the long run won't be as important as long as you feel like you're sitting there and you're engaged in something at a short term yes. level that you feel like has a resolution and meaning. Absolutely, totally agree. Uh, well, I think we'll leave our discussion there, uh, and obviously we'll be sort of watching how the WCS plays out and we'll be seeing how Heart of the Swarm evolves uh, over the next uh, year or so of its life. Now, I don't remember, has Blizzard give us, given us a rough timeline on Legacy of the Void? They, have they just said it's not going to be as long as Wings of Liberty? And I believe that's the case. I think yeah. that's, yeah. Yeah, so the, okay, so they're shooting to keep that gap lower, but it's Blizzard. Come on. 2015? I would guess two years. 2015. Two years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll, we'll Which see. Is fine. Honestly, for me, I'm okay with that. I agree. Yeah. I actually, I'm, I'm in no rush for StarCraft 2 to re- reach its uh, you know, final form. Uh, I'm enjoying seeing the <laughs> evolution. Uh, and I'm certainly happy to have more StarCraft to look forward to as opposed to a dry spell of unknown length. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, yeah, I guess you know, you know, fi- final final thoughts on Heart of the Swarm, guys. Uh, last thing, the only thing that I really would like to point out that wasn't really mentioned during this show, I think the most important feature in the long run for Heart of the Swarm, um, and this is sort of out there, is the ability to kick off a 
game from a replay, which just from a tournament point of view, um, being able to, if you get disconnected from Battle.net or have some sort of problem, you can go back in and find the point to, to, to kick off and move forward from. That is, to me, to my mind, in the long run, as far as competitive play, the most important addition. I, I, I agree with that, actually. That would be, would be one of the points that I would add as well, actually. Um, I, I loved what Blizzard did during the launch of um, the, the big launch event where they had Flash play against Life. And they did a situation where they played one game and then they asked, yes. Fla- they asked Flash, yep. you know, where did you screw this up? What happened? What went wrong? And then they went back to that game and they picked it up right at that moment and they let Flash try something new and they let you know, life try to defend what he came at them with. And I would love that to see them do like fun show matches like that during tournaments and just do something fun with the situation, like do a, a one V one V one or something like that, or (laughs) do another situation with this where, you know, it's just to show off what players will do differently and how they adapt their strategies that just really showcase the game in a big way. You know, the, the, this isn't so much a closing thought about um, Heart of the Swarm, so much as something that's bugged me for the last couple of years. Why has team play... Team play exists competitively on the ladder. Uh, Double StarCraft is actually yeah. a pretty interesting uh, you know, game to watch if, if the teams are roughly balanced, if somebody isn't totally carrying it. Uh, why do you think it doesn't... Like there's there's a ton of interest in team leagues, obviously, but it's just you know it's basically picked champions going up against each other. Uh, why do you guys think that like the idea of like double StarCraft uh, has, has never really caught on? Even though there's always a lot of interest in those team show matches, uh, even if players do tend to dick around on them. My thought is that it's just too complicated to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and to really have it really get close into what a player is actually doing with their build. If you have four players, it's too tough to really get an idea of where the game is going. Yeah. Um, I, I've wondered from a competitive standpoint why it isn't more uh, in depth because I believe, and I'm not sure about this, but I believe that in team play, your units actually have synergy because I, I believe I've played a, a team play match where. I had a bunch of medevacs and my my teammate had a bunch of uh, roaches and the roaches were actually being healed by the medevacs. I believe. I'm not 100% positive about this, but I thought I noticed that. And if you could have situations Mm -hmm. like that where players could have more creativity and coming up with ways to combine the races, then that's really an amazing thing that could really be a lot of fun to watch. From from a viewer's point of view, I think the the problem here is that teams of StarCraft II players are not established as identities and i think when you're watching starcraft 2 you want the story behind the match um Mm -hmm. you know when you're watching two individual players and you know hey they faced off in the last mlg in the final round now here they are again that's great but there aren't a lot of established you don't know hey these two guys are a team and this is the story of their team and this is the story of those two teams competing it just is sort of oh we have such and such and so and so matched up against these two guys and then it's only about the match and it's not not about the story behind, which is, I think, what inspires people to watch StarCraft or or at least be engaged in it in the long run. I would also guess that just balance is a concern because a, a 2v2 match would probably be most games could probably end up being really lopsided. If they were if they were tilted toward one team, one team was doing yeah. slightly better, I feel like it would just be a complete rout. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that about covers our discussion of Heart of the Swarm. As always, our thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes, for putting this episode together, and my thanks to both of you for uh, spending your Saturday night uh, <laughs> hanging out talking about StarCraft. Uh, Nothing so I'd rather do, Rob. That, guys. Nothing I'd rather do, Rob. Absolutely.
All right. See you next week. Until then, good night.